Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. Morrison, uh, professor in Slavic languages and literature at Northwestern University. And we're here today talking about his book, Wonder Confronts Certainty. Um, Dr. Morrison, wonderful to have you today. Well, it's, it's wonderful to be here, and thanks for inviting me. Uh, so normally I would start with, why did you write this book? But I think uh, what I want to start with be before even that is, what is a dialogue of the dead? Oh, well, that's really a great question. Um, it started out as a literary genre <clears throat> in the ancient world. And what would happen would be, you know, the author would imagine that in Hades, um, people who had lived in different centuries <clears throat> could talk to each other. And finally, you know, what happened? Could, if Alexander the Great, you know, could meet Heraclitus, if, you know, <clears throat> Julius Caesar could meet Alexander the Great. What, what would they say to each other, right? And so um, it was a way of posing, usually it was philosophers, and it was a way of getting them to imagine pinning each other down so they could get the full logical impact of their ideas. And it was not just that, you know, you got them to do that even though they never met in life. It was that, you know, if you're dead, you don't have to worry about the consequences <coughs> of your actions. And so they were much freer to talk than anybody would <coughs> be in life, right? So this became a dialogue which, you know, you know a, a literary genre which continued, you know, it continues right up to the present. People are still writing and you can see its appeal. Um, but I decided that that's how I would imagine the Russian conversation. <coughs> I mean, I did literally sort of imagine Hades, but I tried to you know, not do history, there's one after the other, but explain how they pose the ultimate questions of life, and then imagine they could all be part of the same conversation, talking <clears throat> with each other. So, you know, well, and, you know, they, the Russians have a very strong sense of their tradition, so in fact, <clears throat> they're doing that anyway. You know, sometimes when you hear, I don't know, Solzhenitsyn talk about Tolstoy, it's almost as if, you know, they were present and he was annoyed by him personally. <laughs> you know, you know. So it didn't take that much work to do this, but that was the way I wanted to do it, because I wasn't so much interested, I mean, there is some history in the book, but I wasn't so much interested in, you know, how things developed the way a historian would, but what the Russian experience of asking ultimate questions could teach us. Right? <clears throat> so, you know, and my idea was that their questions, just as they thought they were, were the eternally relevant questions that people <laughs> are always going to ask, will always be there. Um, and so, since they were really good at asking them, um, we could learn something <clears throat> from it. And that's, you know, how I, I think about literature. I think about you know, literature for me, I mean, there are other ways to think about literature, but I've always thought of it as a, a source of wisdom, <clears throat> right? I mean, uh, a source of wisdom in the sense that you don't get from other disciplines. I mean, you get, there's overlap, of course, but, um, you know, when a, when a great novelist poses philosophical questions, he doesn't do it the way, let's say, an analytic philosopher <laughs> would do it. And the same kinds of arguments or <coughs> evidence are not, don't work for one as work for the other. You know? So, I don't know. I mean, the typical way, let's say, a philosophical novel works, you know, the ones like Tolstoy in those days, they were written in England, too, um, um, is you explore first, you get the character who has a certain set of beliefs, and first you explore what makes those beliefs convincing to him or her, right? 
That is, people always think <clears throat> it's because they're logically cogent, they're fitly eminent, but there's usually strong emotional reasons in the form or personal reasons. And so you kind of show, you cast a little bit of irony on the police. The, the world is not as simple as you think, and you don't believe it all the reasons that you think you do. And then the plot of the novel then it, it explores what happens if you actually try to live these beliefs, which are always simpler than real life and real experience, in a real world, and what consequences does it actually lead to? And the result is that, you know, the beliefs always turn out to be too simple and flawed. And that's what makes novels, you know, really, um, realist novels different from other literary genres, right? Like, you know, um, there's a literary genre called the Utopian, about um, you know, the journey to the perfect socialist future, and you get all, in that case, the philosophical ideas are not too simple. They are the truth. <clears throat> and anybody who thinks that the world is complex is simply trying to mystify you so you don't see the simple truth. <clears throat> it's the exact opposite of philosophical premise. <clears throat> but the, you know, the great realist novels um, are always showing how the world is too complex and there's something you forgot. <clears throat> you were right to ask the question. There's something you've forgotten by being too certain. And that's sort of part of the title about certainty. Those who are certain, they have the answer. Usually ideologues, the communist philosophers, the 19th century revolutionaries, of many different beliefs. Um, but the great writers cultivated a spirit of wonder. That is, the world is so complex we will never fully understand it. We can, by keep asking the questions, we will never get final answers but we will deepen our understanding of each step. That's actually, I mean, I, I might just like steal this entire clip from you and just use it as a promo for the, for the show, because that's the ideas from Job that the Leviathan is something that you cannot catch. So the idea of chasing Leviathan is, is you, we're chasing the truth, but we can't ever catch it. And that's literally what you're, what you're that's talking about here. That's why you have the title here. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I really resonate with that. That's, that's really awesome. Um, even as you're talking about the different genres as sources of wisdom, um, I've been reading kind of classics to my kids. And so I've, I've gone with fables and uh, fairy tales, which Aesop's and Grimm's feel like they should be similar, but they're actually quite distinct, right? And they're, they're both sources of wisdom, I think, in many ways, but they're very, even different from like the novel, you know, like um, I'm reading, <laughs> of course, they're growing up and everyone's telling them you need to be fair and these sorts of things. And we read Aesop's Fable and I can't remember which animal it was. There's one animal that's stronger than the other and they do a task together. I think it's the wolf and the fox. And at the end, the... <laughs> The wolf's like, actually, I know this is supposed to be our reward together, but I'm just going to take it all. And the fox is like, that's not fair. And he's like, I don't care. And it's like, might makes right. And that's the end of the, <laughs> and my, my kids look at each other and they're like, then they look at me and they're like, that's not supposed to happen. And I'm like, but you know what? It does. Like, it's like, <laughs> and, and that's a totally different, like, you know, very similar to like kind of this utopian novels where it's like, uh, there is a right way to do things and we will end up with this ideal. And then you have like this, this fable that's just like, no, sometimes the wolf just takes everything even just because he's a jerk and he can. <laughs> well, yeah, and it, and it sort of teaches you know, kids that justice is one thing and <clears throat> the agreements that you make with people are something else. Right? Yes, like, yeah. You can't just rely on justice to enforce it. And it's funny because it seems super simple, but when you actually start breaking that down, it, it, it is quite complex and it is something that literature provides, right? Um, right. Uh, so you, you mentioned a little bit about Wonder Confronts Certainty. Where did you get, um, uh, how did that title come to you and who are some of the main uh, players in your Dialogue of the Dead? You've already mentioned some of them, but. Okay, well, how the title came to me, I was you know, um, reading this book, I don't know, written by a Russian literature professor generations before me and, um, on what he called the positive hero in Russian literature. That is, the perfect virtuous hero. Socialist realist literature, communist, is filled, <coughs> filled with it, right? And, um, uh, and 
you know, he was talking about that worldview. <clears throat> and, you know, what happens when, you know, someone sees things differently. And right in the middle of a paragraph, he had the phrase, wonder confronts certainty. And I thought, this is the title I've been looking for, you know, for 10 years. So that's why, you know, he's credited immediately in the open the book, you know, the quotations from him. Um, you know, I wish he had not been dead for 40 years. <laughs> so his students are still around, and they, they appreciate it. Yes, you know? yes. I was not his student. And uh, then, then you asked, who are the writers? Who, <clears throat> well, here's, here's the way it was, I basically set it up. This is a little too simple, but it's basically correct. Um, there are two broad traditions of argument in Russia. And one are the people who are certain, and one of the people who are not, right? And the people who are certain were the members of what was called the intelligentsia. Now, intelligentsia is a word we get from Russian. It was coined there about 1860. But it doesn't mean in Russian, or it didn't mean in Russian, what it means here. If by, you know, it doesn't mean an intellectual. Right? Huh. Um, okay. I was not expecting it's almost, that. <laughs> it's almost the exact opposite. If by an intellectual you mean someone who thinks for himself, it emphatically does not mean that. It's, it's an, it means an ideologue who was signed on to the program, the received program of whatever radical school you belong to. <clears throat> you are not, skepticism is ruled out. Okay? You have the truth. Now, you know, um, it's really interesting how this group developed. And other societies, have, you know, sometimes have these, but not all. <clears throat> um, you to, be a member of the intelligentsia. <clears throat> they were, <clears throat> you couldn't just, um, being educated didn't do it. <clears throat> okay. um, for example, um, if you were not an atheist, some sort of socialist or anarchist, some, definitely a revolutionary, um, you couldn't be, be a member of the intelligentsia. If you didn't believe that the only function of art was propaganda, <clears throat> you couldn't be a member of you, then you had to look at, you had to sort of sever, it's almost like a monk, you had to sever all your ties with you know, the rest of society and identify not as a nobleman or a member of this or that ethnic group, but as a member of the intelligence. That had to be your identity. Um, and so that was, uh, they became the terrorists and revolutionaries and the radical journalists. And as you can imagine, that was contrary to everything that made great art. I mean, you can't make great art if just we're going to illustrate a narrow program we already know, right? So, you know, people like Cherov had utter contempt for these people. Tolstoy did. Um, Dostoevsky not only had contempt, but he thought them extremely dangerous. He did, they didn't have contempt because he, he didn't look down on them. He thought they were really dangerous. The only one in the 19th century anywhere who foresaw the, what totalitarianism would be. That didn't exist. You have to be a genius. But he, you know, saw, asked, what do these people actually do give you power? What will they do? And in one of his novels, he actually describes in detail what would happen. Um, and what he describes actually predicts, you know, the only thing it does, you know, what, if it's not in Soviet totalitarianism, it was in Chinese, <laughs> you know, the Cultural Revolution is described in detail. Um, or, or in Cambodia. And it's all, it's all there. He, he knew this. Right? So you get these two rival traditions. Right? Um, you know, there was a critic writing in 1909 who, I love the quotation, so I use it. Um, he said, the surest gauge of the greatness of a Russian writer is the extent of his hatred for the intelligentsia. Now, of course, that doesn't mean intelligentsia now, but in their sense, right? So, if you think of the history of the Russian tradition as, let's say, Lenin on one side and Tolstoy on the other, right? Um, you know, 19th century terrorists, Russia invented modern terrorism, right? Um, on one side and Tolstoy, you know, or Chekhov or Dostoevsky on the other. Now, what happens, you see, in 1917 is that one faction of the radical intelligentsia, the Bolsheviks, take over. And from that point on, um, 
the writers are not just facing another social group, they are facing a government which is trying to put that program into effect. And so there, you know, you get you know, all these <clears throat> wonderful writers who are not official writers. They have to oppose which way, right? And so that, that becomes this tradition. That's how, you know, when you get, you know, Solzhenitsyn and Pasternak. And, and since the government was mil absolutely militant, the first principle of Bolshevism was atheism and materialism. If you believe that there was any spiritual or higher value, if you believed in a phrase that you would speak with contempt, the sanctity of human life, that proved you were a believer in God, because where would the sanctity of human life come from? You're just matter. Right? Yeah. The idea yeah. something having higher value could only come from religion or maybe Kantian philosophy, which was religion in disguise. Okay? So if you actually believed that human life was worth preserving for its own sake, you were clearly an enemy and you were religious, right? So you said that the atheism was a so it's not really surprising that if you think about it, this is the most first really officially atheist state. That, that took it really seriously and lasted. And several of the greatest writers were Christians. <coughs> right? They were Boris Pasternak, right? and Alexander Solzhenitsyn, right? and Mikhail Bulgakov. <coughs> and the ones who were not Christian, like you know, the Jewish Grossman, <coughs> um, he still believed in similar higher values <coughs> that were completely opposed. Right? <coughs> so he sort of fits in the same camp, although he's not quite, quite a Christian. Right? He believes in you know, the ultimate values that <clears throat> Christians put in this belief. So it's an amazing phenomenon, right? It only struck me, you know, while writing this book, how odd it was. <clears throat> I always knew that we, you know, the great writers were all, <laughs> were all dissidents, but that so many of them were Christian had never occurred to me, you know, until I was actually working on them. And that's really significant because, you know, it's the opposite, right, of what the regime was. If you've if you're living in a society where they really take seriously the idea that people are nothing but matter, that's it. Right? Yeah. Um, really takes materialism to an extreme that American materialists haven't dreamed of. Right? Um, you begin to see why there's either that or you believe in something transcendent. God, you know, maybe it's a Buddhist truth or a Taoist, but it can't just be matter, okay? It can't just be matter. And that's why you get so many, you know, people experiencing some sort of religious conversion. And really, it was even the ones who don't, like, there are memoirs of people, you know, in the Gula who remain communists and atheists, but even though they had been arrested, right? But they acknowledged that the only people who you could trust not to turn you in in order to survive, you know, steal your food or get in right, um, were the believers. And these were atheists saying, you know, and the only people who had the courage to stand up for their convictions, even at the cost of their life, were believers. And it didn't seem to matter what religion it was. They were Pentecostalists and Baptists and, of course, Russian Orthodox and Jews and Muslims, it didn't seem to matter, but they believed in something, you know, that these atheists thought was crazy. But they had to acknowledge that it gave them a moral fiber that the atheists didn't have. So that's really strange, too. Right? Yeah, I, can you talk a little bit, I mean, you mentioned Dostoevsky, and you mentioned uh, kind of that you see literature as this, uh, I won't say an alternative, uh, uh, one of the sources of wisdom that gets passed down through a culture. Um, can you uh, expound on that a little bit? Even like you, you talk about the genius that Dostoevsky had to look ahead. Um, uh, and how does that translate into wisdom? What do you, how do you see that wisdom in uh, and through literature? Like, what does that do? Well, <clears throat> let me just narrow literature down to realist novels for the moment. <clears throat> um, The way realist novels work, they're great, <clears throat> great innovation. I, I always think of it as, you know, the real inventor of this was <clears throat> Jane Austen, who first 
use this as a consistent device right now. And there's a kind of language that they use which gets you inside the head of another person. Allows you not just to see what they do, but to co-experience their sequence of thoughts from there. <coughs> One form of this, but not the most interesting, is stream of consciousness. There are others which are much more interesting. So we have time at this start. But the whole point is that you, when you read, let's say, 800 pages by Anna Karenina, you have not just seen what she's done, but you have traced her, the sequence of her emotions. You wince, no, Dana, don't do that! Right? You're living within her. Right? Um, you know, um, that is, what you experience is intellectual and emotional empathy for hundreds and hundreds of days with people who are very different, who have different beliefs, maybe, you know, maybe a different gender, certainly a different social class and nationality, right? But you learn, not as an abstract principle, you need to empathize, but actually what it feels like is empathy. And you get practice in it because you for hundreds of pages. Um, and it teaches you to see the world differently from the way you otherwise would. Because we see it from one set of eyes, but now we're practicing from another set of eyes, right? Only the great realist novels teach empathy in that way. And that is one of the reasons why, you know, I think literature is so important in you know, to read and in, in college education. Because there is nothing else that gives you practice and empathy. And nowadays, I'm not talking about emotional empathy, but nowadays, you know, um, you know, more often than not, you're not, just as in the Soviet Union, you're not supposed to empathize with wrong ideas, just our ideas. That mm -hmm. doesn't require empathy, of course, right? Agreeing with yourself requires no effort. Yeah. Um, but novels get you to do that. It, you, it, they're, in that sense, always subversive, <clears throat> right? Not in the sense, you know, politically revolutionary, but in the sense that they subvert your habits of thought. <clears throat> they get you to see the world. Um, they get you, even though, though if you imagine that all truth is on one side, they get you to know why a decent, honorable person with different experience, because <clears throat> none of us have, all of our experience is partial, might see things differently and think differently. You learn, I mean, historians, for example, will tell you that to really understand another century or another culture, you need not just to protect your values onto it, how you would behave, what you would anticipate, but you know, how they did it. Otherwise, you, you, have, you don't understand what's going on, right? You know, you know, why, you know, if you just think of, let's say, Isaac Newton, or the great, as someone who thinks like modern scientists, but back then, you don't understand. Then why did he spend most of his time doing alchemy? You know, right. Writing, writing interpretations of the book of Daniel, the book of the Apocalypse. Something very different was going on, right? Of which that led to some of what we think is great scientists. But he didn't think they were his most important thing. What, meant, what produced that? You see, um, you know, how does a third century, you know, Chinese thinker um, pose questions that we pose, but it's a different thing. That's what historians will tell you you, you need to learn. But literature actually gives you constant practice in, do, in doing it, right? So, you know, and, you know, the Russians are really good. They're the great realist novel. And they combine it with asking philosophical questions, so you not only get the emotion, but you actually get it's the thing philosophical. And it's strange. Even you know, the way they do it, characters you don't think of as philosophers still have a worldview, which is really philosophical, like Anna Karenina does. Oh, she's not a philosopher. She really has a sense of her. And she articulates it within, just not in a systematic way, but it's there, right? Right, and right. And you can see it. You can see what the assumptions are by what she said, what she finds convincing somebody else. Or, and you begin to see what that world is. And you know, you begin to see, for example, the how a sequence of ideas you know, could lead you to suicide. The wrong ideas, you know, which happens in a lot of Russia. Yeah, yes, it, a little kind of infamous for that. The um, it's interesting, you know. There's a there's for as long as I've been part of education, there's been a, a big call for critical thinking and installing critical thinking. 
And one of the things that's always been interesting to me is that any curriculum I see with that, generally, that I've been exposed to at least, is very narrow and is is often very rhetorical in focus or writing in focus. Um, but if you go into, you know, the uh, German, uh, German idealist uh, tradition, and even at what you're talking about here, there's this idea of education that's meant to broaden our minds. And I don't hear that talked about much, but that's... Uh, I think another way of, I want to make sure I'm, I'm tracking with you here. That to me also sounds like another way of talking about this empathy, that education's not just to form us for a specific spot, but it's supposed to broaden our minds so that we are better humans. Um, and some of that is we talk about critical thinking is it's not just about uh, a set of rules to follow or a set of best practices. It's also being acquainted with different grounds for conversation, different grounds for dialogue. And I, I think that's a lot of times we're trained in a, a very specific tradition. And what happens is when we're acquainted and we, when we deal with different traditions, like the, like the great Russian authors, or, um, you know, even reading um, uh, a Chinese author from the third century, we are, we have to adapt our ideas to an entirely different cultural ground. And it, it requires us to do a different form of almost creative thinking. Is that, is that match with what you're saying? Absolutely, that's what I'm saying. And you know, you mentioned critical thinking. Um, you know, it, it sounds wonderful, critical thinking. But what it actually means in practice is believe what I do and criticize the thinking of somebody else. <coughs> that is, that's what it means actually in practice, which is the exact opposite of what you might think of the phrase critical thinking, right? <coughs> Similarly, I, I, I was, you know, when I first came to Northwestern University, this was 35 years ago, I was walking down the car and I saw that there was this other professor who had, you know, on her door a big sign that said, question authority, right? And one day I was walking past and I heard her from within saying to a, to a poor student, haven't you learned anything from my class? <laughs> and question somebody else's authority is what you mean, not mine, right? Right, right. right. That's what, how critical thinking. So that's not how realists are. Right? Mm. Um, you know, they really are trying to teach you to get out of your, you know, you will find Dostoevsky certainly had very strong political and philosophical views, but you will find in some of his novels characters who hold those views appearing completely ridiculous. Yeah. Right? right? A certain yeah. form of self-awareness. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, and that's, you know, kind of, um, if, you know, when I, let's say you pick up a, novel, a realist novel, say, something like George Eliot or any of the great realist novels, and, you know, the narrator comments, well, or the author is talking, it's not like a sense life where what the author says is the truth. The author presents her view as, well, this is what I believe. It's, but my view is one view among many. I know I don't have the absolute, but it's what, what I believe. So that's a very different stance from, let's say, what a Bolshevik author was supposed to do is because Marxism, Leninism was, period, the absolute truth that would never change. <clears throat> That's why it was, you know, considered far above physics <clears throat> because physics is going to change, <clears throat> but Marxism, Leninism, well. So at very often, you know, points in Soviet history, a scientific doctrine, whether in biology, chemistry, or physics, would come in conflict <clears throat> with the philosophy of Marxism, Leninism, <clears throat> and it was always the physics of the biology that had to go. Right? I mean, so genetics was rejected for a while. Various theories of chemistry, were, relativity theory was rejected for a while. You know, I was not. Know, I did not know that. That's oh, yeah. that's well. There's this wonderful story. You know, that the physicist Andrei Sakharov, later <coughs> dissidence, right, prominent liberal dissident, who was famous for having invented the Soviet hydrogen bomb, right, and uh, he tells the story of how. <clears throat> Stalin comes to him once talking. He said, you know, I've been reading this new physics. Stalin, by the way, was a, a real intellectual. I know he's just a, just a thug, but he was not. Okay. Um, he was brutal, but he was not uneducated. Right? And he's talking to Sakharov, and he, you know, I've been reading about this new physics, and he's talking about quantum physics, notions like <laughs> indeterminacy and uncertainty, which are 
completely contrary to the Marxist language idea that everything can be known absolutely certain. <clears throat> to think you can, that's the equivalent of agnosticism. We're atheists, not agnostic. <clears throat> so he says, so isn't this contrary to Marxism and Leninism? And Sacher reports that he replied, well, you know, I'm not a philosopher. <clears throat> I'm just a physicist. I don't know if it's contrary, he said, but I do know you can't make a hydrogen bomb without it. <laughs> Go ahead, sister. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, man. It's uh, a wonderful story. You know? Yes. Yeah. Right. Like, it's those little contradictions and instabilities that are drawn out by novelists, right? The, it's like, well, I really disagree with this, and I am certain about my disagreement, but also I need the hydrogen bomb if I'm going to remain in power, right? Um, well, you know, there's this wonderful novel by um, Vasily Grossman, I don't know if you called Life and Fate. Some people think it's the great novel of the 20th century. I don't think it's the great, but I think it's very good. <laughs> it's, yeah, its hero is a physicist, you know, who, you know, um, has to come in conflict with various, you know, official ideas. And there are so many very interesting characters who are devoted communists and how they think. <clears throat> and you get a whole panoply of views of you know, on different ways of being, having wonder or certainty, right? And, and it's quite beautifully done. But he makes sure to make the hero a physicist because he has to interact with notions that, well, <clears throat> I'm sorry, this is not Marxist. This is, this is the, the period when everything bad was thought to be Jewish. This is Talmudic, <clears throat> not mm. real Marxist. <clears throat> and other periods, there are other reasons, right? But he has to confront all of this, right? And it's, you know, it's really, well, it's really quite beautifully done. He, the hero was actually based on a real physicist. But... Oh, who is the real physicist? No, I'm trying to remember his name. Not a... Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> I remember. I could look it up for you. Um, I think it's had the same last name, Strom, something like that. I could look it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. I, um, I did want to ask you about... You, you go through the three types of thinkers. Do you mind kind of exploring that for us? Sure. No, this is when I'm dealing with um, the pre-revolutionary <clears throat> pre period. And I'm trying to give a portrait of, so you don't just think these are abstract, you know, <clears throat> you know ideas that are walking around with bodies of guys, but real people. I talk about three types of Russian thinkers, what their personalities were like and how they <clears throat> Three broad types um, that constantly were recurred, you know, that repeated over and over again, that <clears throat> um, occur, are described in memoirs and fiction, <clears throat> you know, and everyone recognizes it. I call the first one um, the wanderer, and that, that was a type that, you know, if you were uneducated, you were the type that, you were a pilgrim, who, but there were a lot of people who did this. And, you know, in the Middle Ages, they, they were in Western Europe. People would go from shrine to shrine. That was going on in Russia in the 19th century. You know, a lot of them were looking for some sort of, in Russia, of course, ultimate truth. Right? But if you were an intellectual, you didn't go from shrine to shrine. You went from philosophy to philosophy, each one promising to answer all the questions of existence. And what a wanderer would do, there are Chekhov stories describing such people, um, is they would be absolutely certain of one philosophy. And then they would be disillusioned. Now, what they never did was think, oh, maybe the, the truth is not in a single philosophy. <clears throat> maybe the world was too No, no, they just leap to another philosophy. <clears throat> right. There's never a moment of skepticism. There's a moment of disillusionment, but never skepticism. And disillusionment lasts only until you get into the philosophy, which isn't very long. <clears throat> so this time, <clears throat> um, some of the real people, I give portraits of them, they're amazingly interesting people. <clears throat> Sometimes absolutely brilliant. You know, Russia's greatest <clears throat> literary critic was one of those. Um, he was constantly going from ideology to ideology. And, and he, he was quite self-aware. I mean, one of my favorite lines is when he says, you know, if I had the power, it would go really badly with someone who thought the way I did six months ago. Okay. It never leads to skepticism humility, right? <laughs> right? Um, so that's one type of thing. <clears throat> And there's another type of thinkers I call, you know, the idealist. <clears throat> and these are, these are different because there are two types of these, but they, what they all 
there was they, they don't go from idea to idea. They just cling to one idea <coughs> forever. So the model for them that was always used was Don Quixote, right? Tugendhat is an asshole. So, and you know, no matter how, what the disillusionment is, it's be like evil magicians made it look that way. Just the way Don Quixote, except it's not evil magicians. It's, you know, right? They would cling to the idea. Um, and the other knight was one who also could have only one idea, but wouldn't face disillusion and had to conflict. And those were, the most common type of those were the populists, who in this, the term, another term we get from Russia, you know, they were, um, they believed that all virtue lay with the simple Russians. And so there are all these philosophies based on it. And they would then they would go to the countryside and they would find that they were cruel, brutal, drunken, you know, do terrible things to each other. Not only not support widows and orphans, but, but you know, <coughs> kill them or take advantage. I mean, it was awful. Absolutely what they actually found. They, you know, as one of them said, I saw nothing but swinishness. And then he tries at one point to, well, listen, if this is what the, if the peasants are all good and this is what the peasants do, maybe that's what true morality is. So he adopts swinish. <laughs> I mean, he does everything. He, but he, nothing works, right? And he has wonderful stories in this guy, um, clearly autobiographical. But he, well, to give, give it short, he went mad. And he wound up thinking that he was a pig. That is all the swinish thing. He took a letter and became a pig in his own mind. A lot of these pockets went mad. Some of them were brilliant writers. Okay? And again, Chekhov has a story about, about one of them. Some of them committed suicide. Others became alcoholic. So that's the second type, the idea. Yeah. And the third type is what I call the revolutionist. Now, a revolution is not just a revolutionary. A revolutionist is someone who loves revolution or terrorism for their own sake, the thrill of it, <clears throat> the sense that you are beyond good and evil, that you can, <clears throat> you know, kill, you can do anything, you, that you are a god, right? beyond, that, or that the intensity that comes from, you know, you could be killed any minute during a terrorist, you know, attack, you know, the thrill of being your life on the line. There are a lot of things, some of them are different motives. The point was that you were a revolutionary for your own sake. This is for people who created the modern terrorist movement in Russia. You know, Russia is the first country where, if you ask a young man or woman, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? They might say terrorism. It was a respectable occupation, sometimes passed on from, you know, generation to generation. The whole families were terrorists from generation to generation. The Lenins were one of them, right? Not by no means the only one. Lenin's siblings were terrorists and revolutionaries. Um, there were a lot of these families. And of course, it was a, you know, a very dangerous occupation. You may not live long, but it was a highly respectable The only one occupation that, you know, had more respect or as much respect in Russia was writer. Because, you know, Russians adore literature. It's the, it's the purpose of existence, is literature. So I, was asked, I discovered while doing my work that there was this one terror, the most famous terrorist of his day, he killed a lot of prominent people in Boris Savinsky. And he was also a novelist. And he wrote novels about terrorism. Right? And um, one of them has since been translated, most of them have not. But um, I realized reading you know, his memoirs and his novels and all about him, I couldn't tell whether he wrote novels to dramatize his terrorist activities. Or he became a terrorist and material for novels. He kept clippings he got, uh, of both his activities, his you know, use of his books and his, you know, use of his terrorism. <laughs> he got them together. You know. So this is the third, this is the other type. <clears throat> you know, he would do for any, he didn't care what the philosophy was, you know, this kind of populism, this kind of socialism. He'd be a terrorist for anybody, right? Didn't matter, right? Terrorism was a goal. You start with, you know, the welfare of the people is the goal, so revolution is the means. Then revolution becomes the goal, right, in itself. And terrorism becomes the means. And then terrorism becomes the goal, right, a goal in itself. It keeps going like that, right? So those have become the three types that, that 
art, they appear over and over in literature, you know. Um, and the writers are fascinated with these types. You know. They see them around them all the time. And, you know, well, what is very often the case in Russia is that people you think with very dangerous, crazy, cruel ideas are geniuses who are highly creative, highly creative thinkers. That goes right up to the present, by the way. Um, even as you're talking here, um, absolutely fascinating. I didn't realize that terrorism had been invented in this way in Russia. Well, they but... have been earlier terrorists, but, you know, this is a, as a movement of the sort, you know, with, you know, not just a few terrorists over here, but, you know, a whole almost... So yeah, can can you contextualize that for me a little bit? Because I'm trying to like I, I'm you know you're talking about they're killing people they're 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 doing it for the sake of a movement. Uh, can you give us some maybe some stories about what that would look like? Because I'm trying to uh, picture in my head a little bit more concretely what you're what you're talking about when you say terrorist. Well, you know, it starts out in a relatively simple way. What you want to do is kill prominent government. Um, and in the 1870s, you had this group of people who would, you know, they drove ways of stalking them and um, eventually, you know, throwing bombs and killing them. And they eventually, their goal was eventually to kill the Tsar, and they did in 1881. They blew him off with a bomb. You know, it was like their 15th try, and why, you know, the, the government was so incompetent not to, you know, cast him. I mean, there was one time that they decided they were going to kill him by uh, blowing up the entire palace that he was in, and everybody in it at the same time, and kill him along with it. And, you know, so the way they did it was that police were checking anyone who went to the building, but not the tradesmen who were working in the basement. Well, the guy came in as a tradesman, and every day he brought in a little bit of explosive, right? One day... And it blew up the whole, you know, whole ballrooms were destroyed and everybody in them, right? I mean, children were, 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 were killed. The Tsar's children were thrown, you know, far away. They weren't killed, but they were hurt. But the Tsar happened to have just stepped out for a minute. So he wasn't mm. killed. <clears throat> Lots of other people were, right? Um, uh, but they well, finally... <laughs> Good. Then in the 90s, in the beginning of the 20th century, it became a mass movement. It wasn't mm. just a few so it was thousands of people, right? You know, they you know who do things like throw bombs laced with nails into cafes to to see how the foul bourgeois will squirm, as one of the things put it, right? I mean, you know, anyone who could be identified as having a connection to the government, even a post office clerk, would not would either be bombed or be. Def Nothing I love to do is throw sulfuric acid in their face. You ever see somebody <coughs> after that? And they look, you know, oh, pick. no. <coughs> right. uh, and, you know, it was you know, one of my favorite. There were more terrorist attacks <coughs> than traffic accidents. Mm. And um, one of my favorite stories is a, you know, a provincial newspaper <coughs> where uh, one of the reporters asked the editor, you know, New governor has been appointed. Shall we run his biography? And the answer is no, save it for the obituary. Mm. Yeah. It's not yeah. going to be very long. Right? right. So this is what the culture of terrorism was, you know, was like at the beginning of the 20th century. That's what, you know, it was extraordinary. There's never been anything like that. And now, when the Bolsheviks took over, the terrorists including the ones who were not Bolsheviks, but belonged to other ideologies, Lenin was shooting everybody who didn't belong to, you know, to his party. You know, the socialist, the liberal. But the terrorists found employment with him, working for the Chicago the secret police. He hired them. They knew what they were doing. They wouldn't be squeamish. Hmm. So they found employment. Well, who do they care who they're killing? You know, it's just terrorism, yeah. right? And that's, I, I think uh, I was struggling and it's become clear as you're talking about what's the difference between like a terrorist and an assassin, right? Is this uh, the emotional effect? And even like the, you've mentioned a little bit of this emphasis on the media. And is that part of the outgrowth of some of the technology like spreading like, like the press? Yeah, it is. I mean, assassins typically, they've existed for a long time. The point is simply um, you are the target of a particular person and you want to 
rid of that person. You know, um, the story you know about how the word assassin comes is you know it's a medieval <clears throat> word, <clears throat> Muslim word derived from hashish, which is to get these people to go and risk their lives. <clears throat> Hashishans or assassins, <clears throat> right? Um, they they existed for a long time, but a terrorist is trying to frighten all, not just kill a single person, but frighten all of society. You know, you blow up a whole palace <clears throat> to kill your, your guy, right? You throw bombs into cafes. That's that's the assassin terrorist, right? Right. Or the sulfuric acid, which is not a, a, a it's a, more about the fear and the disfigurement <laughs> right. than, than the that's death. Right. Wow. And the, um, the, you know, the, you didn't have to really, really do anything to do that sort of treatment, right? In fact, they were, they supported themselves by robberies. They called them expropriations to make it sound. But there were so many of these expropriations that the criminal gangs started claiming that they were not stealing, they were doing expropriations. So it was very hard to tell who were the, you know, the revolutionaries engaged in, you know, in robbery and who were the robbers. And in right. fact, Sometimes they were the same person, you know, guy, okay, I'll give this much to the party and take this much for myself, you know. It, it, it's a fascinating, you know, there's a wonderful book about this written about 20 years ago um, by a historian um, called Thou Shalt Kill, <coughs> you know, about Russian revolutionary terrorism in this period. It's a wonderful book. It's, it's absolutely riveting. <coughs> but then, you know, starting with that, I read, then read their memoirs, you know, and, you know, this the novels, and they wrote them. You know, Savinko was not the only terrorist who wrote novels or memoirs. You know, this is Russia, right? You know, where you have to. Yeah, that's what you do, <laughs> right? Um, I, and I want to be uh, respectful of your time, but I did want to especially ask, um, as you talk about timeless questions, one of the 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 first that you mention, and I think is just really um, on point for what we've talked about today, is what can uh what can't theory account for yeah you know the second the third part of the book was about half of it, it is it's been set up before you know by what people will like and all the, the big questions that he talked about and i go through how they argue about them. so one of them is that the argument: what is the role of theory in life does is theory like hard science can it be a hard social science right a question which is very much with us right um that determines everything in life with the laws of physics. Um, and this theory that will take precedence over specific events. You know, if you're a physicist, it, you're not interested in a particular event. You're interested in the laws governing them, right? And, you know, the same with if you're a social scientist, that people conform to the laws if you've really got a science. Or is that, can it be, this is what, you know, Theo Tolstoy argued, he gave, re and Dostoevsky too, why there could never be a social science. It's not that we don't have one yet. <laughs> never. And this is amazing. You think about the number of people who, from the 17th century, you know, in our time, you know, not just Marx, but Freud thought he had a hard science. And, you know, more recently, uh, Jared Diamond thinks he has a hard science. And a, there are a lot of economists who think that economics <clears throat> is, a, you know, is a hard science. It, it's a dream, just what Newton did for the planets, we can do. And the Russians, there are some, a lot of Russians like that, but there are also a lot, who are, like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, who give very principled reasons why, let's say, contingency is absolutely ineradicable, or other reasons why, you know, human beings will never be subject. I mean, in, you know, in Tolstoy's novel, War and Peace, he does it by having the generals who are the Russian generals there all believe they have a social science, a science of warfare. And Tolstoy makes it clear he means to, to refer to any possible source. And they all plan battles, and they say, every contingency has been foreseen. We can plan a battle scientific. And they lose. Right. They lose. And, and then do they say, oh, well, maybe... Maybe we don't have a son. No, no, no. This, and he gives all the excuses that people always give. You know, I don't know. You make a prediction about what the temperature in the air is going to be at a certain time. It turns out to be wrong. I mean, do you say, 
yeah, well, our, we, we basically are right in our picture, but we need a little more work on, you know, on the particulars. No, 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 you just ignore it or you explain it away, right? And the same with economists, you know, you know. <clears throat> well, yeah, no, no, I mean, we didn't predict that recession, true. But now we've modified the theories that we could have predicted. <laughs> All right. <these> excuses, <laughs> you know, you, you want to say, listen, any cockamamie theory can be p- predict the past. <laughs> the test is whether you predict the future, right? You know? But that people don't, because the dream is so strong that knowledge to be real has to resemble physics or not. Real humanistic knowledge, real knowledge of society, is not at all like that. <clears throat> you know, it involves wisdom, not parasite. Aristotle was very clear about this. There are two types of knowledge, right? You know, and um, ethics, for example, he says, is not a matter of what does not resemble mathematics, because there's always an exception. <clears throat> you know, there's always something that doesn't quite fit. The contingencies <coughs> can't be foreseen. That's why you need wisdom. And he says, you know, this is why young people very often become fabulous mathematicians, but they never become good at ethics. Hmm. Because it relies on a lot of experience and being wrong a lot and reflecting on it. And of course, old people <coughs> usually don't do that either, but they could do it. And so, right? <laughs> the only people who, you know, who could be good at ethics are old people who've had these and reflected properly on right? mm. But that's not true with mathematics or physics, right? <clears throat> right. And so you have the sense of two kinds of knowledge, right? And one of them, again, is about you can't be certain, you know, one of Aristotle's favorite phrases, on the whole and for the most part, right? Which, you know, mathematicians don't speak of, you know, on the whole and for the most part, the angles of a triangle equal 180 degrees. <clears throat> you wouldn't understand mathematics if you did that, if you said something. But, you know, the novel, the Russian novelists are in a world of, on the whole, Hmm. Um, One, let me say, first of all, I have really enjoyed this conversation. If, uh, as our audience goes out for this week, uh, and this is often one of my uh, most frustrating questions, I know that, but what is one... uh, takeaway that you could give them to just think about through the week uh, uh, from our discussion today? Oh, that's interesting. Um, Well, if you think about ethical questions, how certain can you be at the end? I have a whole chapter, a couple of chapters on ethics in the book. Um, and the way you think about them. How certain can you be of the answers? What are the dangers of being too certain? And how can you learn from getting inside the head and soul of someone who sees differently? What's the benefit of thinking, you know, maybe sometimes people disagree with me, not because they're evil, but because they're experienced. And maybe I can learn. I might not change my mind, but maybe I can learn something. Mm. Deepen my mind, even if not change it. What's the advantage of doing that? And is there actually an ethical imperative to do that when you're dealing with ethics or anything else? That's sort of, you know, that's a key question. And just raising the question about how far, when, you know, um, you do this is, I think, one of the great lessons that literature has to teach. Dr. Morrison, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on today. Thank you. Oh, it's been a pleasure to be here. You ask great questions. Thank you so much.